Baruch Hashem Yahweh. I'm ready to jump into Romans chapter 10 today. Praise Yahweh. Of course, as we enter in now to this 10th chapter, it's building and been building and building. Remember, of course, this is a letter. It is a letter, and it would have been read publicly. And now we're getting into the 10th chapter. And, of course, it begins with, Israelite brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to Yahuwah for Israel is that they may be saved. So this is the beginning now of this portion of the letter, remembering the first century-wide scale Jewish rejection of Yahusha has caused much grief to Rav Shaliak Shaul, Rabbi Apostle Paul. He's in grieving because he sees the state of his fellow countrymen. Basically, the majority of them have what? They've rejected the Savior. They've rejected the Deliverer. And this now causes Paul to go in and describe what this is causing him to feel and experience so that he can now communicate this to his audience. And again, I keep repeating this, but it really does change your perspective when you understand that the majority of his audience were the northern house of Israel that had been dispersed into the nations, assimilated amongst the nations or the Gentile nations. And the Jewish Orthodox believers in Rome had previously, prior, been kicked out of Rome 10 years prior. They had all disappeared back up into Jerusalem And, of course, the congregation had grown to be a Messiah-centric community with a dispersed remnant that were leading it. Ephraim, Israel, the ten northern tribes, were really the main congregations in Rome. But now, as he's writing this letter, there's a starting to be a trickle effect of Jews returning back to Rome after the edict of Claudius had been lifted after a decade, and the Jews that are returning, they are the ones that have the wide-scale rejection of Yahushua and now coming back to their synagogues and finding, whoa, what's happened? It's transformed. It still is Hebrew, But now they're holding to the Messiah. And who are all these people from the nations? It is the regathering of the whole house of Israel. And this now is causing attention. And he goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 10, For I bear them record that they have a zeal. Oh, they're not apathetic. They have a zeal. The word here is, in the Greek is zelos, zelos, and the Hebrew is quinar. Now, who do we think of when we think of somebody who is zealous for Yahuwah? And of course, your Hebraic mind would go right back to a man picking up a javelin and throwing it through a couple caught in the tent. It, of course, Phineas, or in the Hebrew, Pincus. Pincus had a zeal. And we can see here that Paul 
understands that yes, his Israelite brothers, his fellow countrymen, they have a zeal, a zealous or a kinar for Yahweh, but it is not according to knowledge. The Hebrew word there is da'at, and the Greek word there is epignosis, and what that means is they do not have the discernment. So their zeal is half-baked. They've gone off half-cocked. And I've got to tell you, I see a lot of that. I see a lot of that. In both um, in support of the message coming out from this ministry and attacking the message coming out of this ministry. Both ways, half-cocked. Because it's amazing if don't talk about something that you don't even understand. Because I think there's a proverb about that, isn't there? And it's amazing there can be detractors talking about the Malkitzedic message, but you're like, but you're not even understanding the message. No wonder it's confusing to you. And then to try and tear down something you don't understand yourself really does not do any good for you, your ministry, or the people out there that are trying diligently to come to what? Da'at. Knowledge. But we also know that it must begin with that inward change. But Paul here understands that they have a zeal, but it is not according to discernment. They got no discernment. They're unable to discern. For they, being ignorant of Yahuwah's zadakah, righteousness, they go about to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted themselves to the righteousness of Yahuwah. And he encapsulates why they have made this fall into a lack of knowledge and a lack of discernment. It's because they are not submitted to Zadokah, righteousness. The Jews were undoubtedly zealous, yes, but zeal isn't enough. You can't be just zealous without understanding. You've got to have the zealous. And at the time of this writing, of course, in Jerusalem, there was a huge amount of zealots, was there not? There was a huge zealot problem. The Jews were, at the time of this writing, one of the most educated and knowledgeable peoples in the first century world, without doubt. But their knowledge was what? Not according to righteousness. And you still see that today within Judaism. There is an incredible amount of knowledge. But is it submitted to the righteousness of Yahuwah? Their zeal is for Elohim. You have to admit that. It's not like they're zealous for some pagan deity. No, their zeal is for Elohim, for sure. They're not into some empty pagan fanaticism unlike the Greeks and some of the pagans in Rome. No, but their zeal is for the one true living Elohim. And therein, brethren, therein lies the deception. And you see that today in the Hebrew roots and the Messianic movement. Because the Jews have a zeal for Elohim, 
But that zeal is not submitted to the righteousness of Yahweh. It lacks discernment, but it truly is a lot of knowledge right there that people run because they know it's not pagan fanaticism. They go, oh, they're, yeah, they're seeking knowledge after the one true Elohim. I want to know about the one true Elohim. And then they leave Yahushua behind, which is righteousness, which is where you get all of your discernment. And then they go headlong into what? Being puffed up with knowledge, lose the discernment, lose the walk of Zadokah, the righteous walk of the priesthood, and go headlong in a revolving door from Christianity into Messianic and out through the back door into Judaism. This is a problem. This is a problem, but it can be easily healed by returning to your first love. And that's the key. Return to your first love. The Pharisees, they were zealous They were zealous, but they were zealous to kill Yahushua, weren't they? They were zealous to implement the death penalty. Paul's point here is zeal wasn't enlightened. They had zeal, but their zeal wasn't enlightened. That is Judaism 101. Oh, they're zealous. And they're not zealous for pagan deities. They are zealous but their zeal is not enlightened. And some will say, well, actually, they are zealous for pagan deities. It's Babylonian deities that they brought out from Babylon with them. And there is a case and point to that because when they did go into Babylon, they did not come out unencumbered by the pagan deities of Babylon, hence Hanukkah and Purim and various pagan deity traditions that have attached themselves to Judaism. But Christianity, again... The same thing. These syncretistic worship systems attach to the true faith and then it becomes a blur and we're all here in the 21st century befuddled trying to find our way back to Zadokah, which is where there is enlightenment in Yahushua. So again, it is staying on course. Now their lack of knowledge is twofold. Number one, they lack the knowledge of how Yahweh declares a person forensically righteous. That's the first instance. Their lack of knowledge is twofold. They don't understand the righteousness when it comes to salvation and being cleansed. That's called forensic righteousness. And how does Yahweh declare that? It's imputed by the death, burial, resurrection of Kiss the son if you know his name. Do you know his name? That's what the psalmist says. Kiss the son if you know his name. Do you know his name? That's how Yahweh imputes righteousness. That's the forensic righteousness that gives you a jurisdiction change. Does that make sense? So they didn't understand that. And number two, they hold to a means of righteous status as a people group that Yahweh will reject. They were so focused on them being a select people group. And because we are Jewish, we are righteous. But Yahweh will reject that. That is not in his economy of the scriptures. 
Just because you're of a people group doesn't mean that you are righteous. And they, that was the thrust of first century Judaic faith, was again that they thought that their righteous status came because of their people grouping. But Yahweh was going to reject that. So their knowledge or lack of knowledge, I should say, it was twofold. So the Jews, at the time of this writing, they refused to humble themselves and accept Yahuwah's righteousness as the undeserved gift that it truly was and still truly is. So Paul, right here in these opening three verses, is talking of more than just acquiring knowledge of the facts. Reading and studying this is not about acquiring knowledge of the facts. It's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. More than just a participation in Bible study. The Jews didn't possess all the information. And how many of us have been reading this for decades and listening to somebody standing at a pulpit but we haven't been given or haven't possessed all the information. It's only when we start to dig in and come together and lay down the traditions of the elders that we can now start to comprehend because we're getting the information of which is in these beloved pages. So the Jews didn't possess all the information and... They couldn't comprehend it. How many times do you start to share your faith now to Bible-believing fellows and they literally become glass-eyed and and do not comprehend it? Because you have to have a regular diet of Scripture to be able to comprehend what we're communicating. You simply can't if you don't have a regular diet of Scripture. So that's the key, and this is what we're talking about. The Jews had Torah knowledge, but Torah knowledge isn't good enough. That Torah knowledge has to lead to enlightenment. It has to be an enlightened Torah knowledge. It must be interthreaded with wisdom, and that's got to be even greater than the wisdom of Solomon. Because even Solomon didn't understand the prophecies when they came to Yahushua. But we're on the other side. We have been given that wisdom. And it's the wisdom that reveals Yahushua. That's the Torah's goal. That's the Torah's goal. For look what it says in verse 4. For the Messiah is the actual goal of the Torah. Right here and there. And the Hebrew word, excuse me, the Greek word there is for goal is telos, telos, goal. And, you know, many people would twist that word to mean something else, that, you know, well, now that we've got Messiah, the goal has been reached, it's done away with, and now we're in Messiah. But that's not what the Greek word telos means. It means a goal to which the movement is being directed. So this was a cyclical movement from the beginning to which it's being directed. It's the outcome of, not the extinction of or the termination of. That's key. Because in the traditional Christian world, it's been interpreted as the extinction of and the termination of. No, 
That's not what we're talking about. This is a cyclical world. This world of the living word is a world of cyclical Shabbat to Shabbat, Rosh Hodesh to Rosh Hodesh, Moed to Moed, cyclical just like Ezekiel's wheel. And we can see the goal is to which something is directed, to which the outcome will be. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 22, is a great example of the Greek word telos. But now being made free from, from sin, having become slaves to Yahuwah, you have your fruit to holiness with the end result, the telos, the outcome, the goal. It's not the extinction of, is it? With the end result, everlasting life. So context, and we can see now the word grouping we now can move along from the false traditions of men, which says that that's extinct. We've reached the goal. Let's go on with Jesus. That's not what this is communicating. So we have to be able to get past that. In fact, we have an English word, um, teleology, which means what? It's the study as we go through and we'll understand more. It's about the um, sector, I believe, of philosophy about the outcome of things. It deals with the outcome of things, and it comes from that Greek word, telos. It's a sector of um, philosophy. Did I say psychology? Philosophy. Okay, it's philosophy that deals with outcomes and goals. So, I mean, it's perfect description. Look at the next verse. For Messiah is the actual goal of the Torah for an eternal right standing to everyone that believes. For Moshe describes the righteousness that comes from the Torah, that the man who does those things shall live by them. And right there he's quoting Leviticus chapter 18 verse 5. So we'd have to turn back and see what the context of Leviticus 18.5 is. And it speaks of a quality of daily life lived in what? Kedushah, holiness on the path of faith that Yahweh has laid out for all his people. That's what it's about. He wants us to walk on a holy path of living righteously before Yahuwah each and every day. Leviticus 18.5 speaks about the quality of the daily life lived in holiness before Yahuwah. I mean, think about all the Jewish learning. Think about all the Jewish study of the millennia. I mean, volumes and volumes and volumes of Jewish learning and study. But... You know, when I think about it, it must be serpentine. It must be so skewed because still they miss Messiah. So it's a serpentine study because it's missing the goal. So you have to be extremely discerning when you delve into the works and writings of a religion that denies the very discernment that you're supposed to carry. Because without Yahusha, you have no discernment. Nothing. You are what? A rudderless ship. Amen. The Jews were and still are ignorant 
of Yahweh's covenant faithfulness through Yahushua because they were so busy and still to this day are busy trying to establish their own righteousness and that's what Paul's point is. They don't think that the righteous status comes by Yahushua. They believe as a people group that they have their own covenant righteous status and everyone else is a goy, right? Wrong. And that's the same problem. Their righteousness comes from a lack of knowledge and a lack of understanding. They think it is attained by being part of a people group. And you're good to go. We're the chosen people. Actually, Israel, it says, is the chosen people. It doesn't say the Jews are the chosen people. That's often misquoted. Israel, all 12 tribes, and the sojourner that attaches and comes into the community of faith back at the mountain and comes into the priesthood by the ratified covenant of Messiah is his chosen people. And we'll get more into this in next week, chapter 11, of course, with the olive tree. So, in sum, a first century Jewish misplaced status of covenant membership. That's the problem. They were so focused on their righteous status as a people grouping that they missed what the real righteous status came from. And that is still the same thing today. It all comes down to what's in your blood. Who was your mother? Was your mother a Jew? Well, your father's a Jew, but your mother's not a Jew, so you're a goyim. You're a Jew. Because you've got, this is only what makes you righteous. Otherwise, you're just cast off. And this is so upside down from what true righteousness is, which is submitted to Yahweh's idea of covenant membership that only comes through the ratified blood of his son. So they chose to quietly set aside the call to covenant, Romans 9, 7 and onwards. Instead, listen, they fabricated their own covenant status for Jews and only Jews. No remnant. There's no Gentile admission except through proselyte conversion and the cutting of the member. That's the only way that you can get in. A covenant status that is totally fabricated and it establishes their own righteousness based upon their flesh, their earthly parentage, just as today, and it's called a monopoly. And that will not go well in the realm of faith, will it? A monopoly based upon the works of flesh. It's a very sad thing when you really drill down into what Paul is communicating because we're dealing with the same thing today. We're dealing with the same thing today. And we've got these misplaced Christian Zionists clapping away to what? A group that falls right within the very, very damning letter that Paul is communicating to this misplaced group trying to attain righteousness through themselves, not submitted to the righteousness of Yahuwah. And let's look at verse 6. But the righteousness that is of faith speaks in this manner. Say not in your heart, who shall ascend into the heavens? That is to bring Messiah down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? 
That is to bring up the Messiah again from the dead. So what's this talking about? Those of you familiar with the Torah will know that Paul right here is doing a drash on Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. And in the Septuagint, it says this. It's a slightly different reading. Remember the Septuagint pulls from the most ancient Hebrew that we have. And the Septuagint it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. Neither is it beyond the sea. Neither is it beyond the sea. Because Paul uses here, we shall defend into the deep because actually he's harmonizing two scriptures here. He's harmonizing Deuteronomy 30 verse 12, and you can turn to it, Psalm 107 verse 26. And he's harmonizing these two scriptures. Why? Because in Psalm 107, turn there if you want to, verse 26, it is written, They go up to the heavens and they go down again to the depths. So if you read Psalm 107, it speaks, and this is amazing, he's harmonizing these two scriptures, but Psalm 107 speaks of the redeemed, listen, the redeemed of Yahweh being gathered from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. And after that, because they've been dispersed in the nations, they're now going to be gathered. He sends his word and he heals them and his word delivers them from captivity what is this talking about? It's about recognizing the works of Yahweh and rejecting the works of man, which are futility and bondage. And the Jews that are coming down from Jerusalem are shackled in futility and bondage because they think their covenant righteousness comes from being a Jewish group. Yet, Paul is seeing this tremendous growth in the Roman synagogues from who? Jews? No, from those that are coming from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. And they all are coming in, submitted and finding their righteousness comes through what? Yahusha that brings them into covenant right standing, forensic righteousness. That is why he is threading Deuteronomy 30 verse 12 with Psalm 107 verse 26. Read it. That's what he's communicating. And we just buzz right on through. This is the regathering of the whole house of Israel. And the regathered remnant recognize where their righteousness comes from. That's the difference. That's the difference between me and Judaism. That's the difference between me submitted to Yahweh's righteousness, knowing where my understanding comes from, and those that seek to establish their own righteousness are going to be what? Walking around with the temple faithful and doing blood sacrifices following the abominable works of the flesh. There's nothing new under the sun. So he's having a lot more joy with the return remnant than he is with the so-called righteous up on the hill. 
just as we're finding today. Just as we're finding today. The good news is not far off if, if, if you can humble yourselves, cast off your own works, and accept the works of Yahweh through the manifest word of Yahushua. That's the truth. Verse 8. But what does Torah actually say? The word is near you, even in your mouth, And in your heart, that is the word of faith which we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth the master Yahushua and shall believe in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Now I'd really like to buzz through this one, but I think it's time for me again. I have to do it once in a while to eat some crow. Not literally, but many of you know my background, and I have to admit this. I'm going to confess with my mouth, just as it says. I am guilty. When I was an elder at Calvary Chapel, we would stand along the side walls, and after service, if anyone would like to come forward and confess with their, and we would do this. You know, just confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you're saved. (laughs) And there's a crab fest down the road and we'll all be meeting there for brunch afterwards. It's a very common thing, but it's not right and it's certainly not righteous. But that's how I was taught. But now I start to drill down into what this actually means, and I go, how on earth could we have simplified it into stupidity and made a revolving door? Again, bring them in, sinner's prayer, confess with your mouth, and buzz you out the back door without holding anybody to the standards of righteousness of being disciples, disciplined ones. Because this, to me, as we go further down, we will see more. I'll just finish up with um, verse 10 here. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to Yahushua. For the writings and the scriptures say, whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. There's three things here. Number one, confess. Number two, believe. And three, saved. Let's look at these. Confess. What are we talking about? The word there in the Hebrew is nadar. Nadar. It's spelled nun dalit resh. And, of course, it comes from Belmidbar, Numbers chapter 30. The vow. The vow. The Greek word is homo legeo, meaning one word and deed. So now, what does confession really mean? Because it's not what they teach in seminary. And it's not what they taught me as an elder at Calvary Chapel. What does it mean to confess? It is talking about word and deed preceded by a action. That's confession. It's not repeat after me these fairy words. And now you're living in a fantasy world that you've constructed. No. 
It doesn't mean that at all. Not repeat after the, me these words whatsoever. Homo, meaning one action of word and deed, and to confess beyond all question. It's not only acoustic. You're not just hearing, but it's not mental assent. It is that you are making a vow. Now, when you look at vows in the Scripture, in fact, I mean, it says right in the Psalms. Oh, it's very, very, very serious. What is it? Psalm 56, verse 12. Vows made to you are binding upon me, O Elohim. When I confess... I'm binding myself to you. That if I then don't follow through with my vow and I become a backslidden believer, punishment will visit me. That's a vow. So you be careful what you say. Confess, meaning take a vow. What happens if you don't follow through with your vow? Punishment will follow. Meaning, if you give Yahuwah lip service with Jesus and don't vow your life, you'll get worse punishment. Meaning, the servant will be beaten with many rods. Whereas the unbeliever, they didn't take the vow. Oh, they'll get lightly chastised. But the servant, oh, he's going to get beaten with rods. He knows better. Look what it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 47. So be careful because a worse punishment will come upon the believer, the servant who doesn't follow through with their vow, than the unbeliever who never made a vow in the first place which is the distinction between being on fire and following through with your vows or just being cold and not making a vow. But the one who confesses and doesn't follow through with it, that's the lukewarm that's going to get the tar beaten out of them by the master himself. Luke 12, 47. The Lord of that servant will come. He's the servant, remember. He's serving the master. So this isn't some unbeliever. This is a believer. The Lord of that servant will come in the day that he hopeth not, and at the hour that he knoweth not, because they're expecting a pre-tribulation rapture, which isn't going to happen. And shall separate him and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. The lukewarm is going to be having the same portion with those that are cold, but they're going to get a worse punishment than the cold. Now, why isn't this taught? Because this would make me think very, very long and sure and solemnly, do I really want to go up front and confess Yahushua as my master and savior? Because if I do, I can never turn back. I am making a vow that if I make this vow, 
my life will never be the same. And if I take my hand off of this plow and look back, because I'll be better off sitting with the unbeliever and not making a commitment to Messiah than making a commitment to Messiah and then becoming a backslider. So whatever my decision is today, I've got to be sure. Because it is not, come all ye faithful, and we're not going to teach you the truth. Do you understand? This isn't taste and see and then change your mind. And this is the serious of it. it, Excuse me. Verse 47 of Luke chapter 12. And the servant who knew the will of his master and prepared not himself and did not according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not, the unbeliever, that never made a commitment, the unbeliever that didn't know, but they've also done things worthy of stripes, well, he shall be beaten with few stripes. How's that for a gospel message of truth and the soberness and seriousness of confessing Yahusha as your master? You better follow through because you made a vow just by confessing, which also makes you be very cautious of what you speak and what you confess, right? Because you don't want to make vows and align yourself with foreign deities, do you? So again, sober speech is of imperative to the saints. The second thing that we're looking at in these verses is to believe. The Greek word there, pisteo, pisteo. The Hebrew word shema, shema, meaning to guard, to put one's faith in with the implication that actions will follow. I'm going to put my faith in, and then actions are going to follow. Look at verse 12. For there is no difference between Jews and Greeks or the Arameans. For the same master, Yahweh, is over all and is rich in mercy to all that call upon him. For whoever shall call upon him the name of master, Yahweh, shall be saved. Now, the point isn't the pronunciation of his name. That's not the point. I know people can get caught up. The point isn't the translation, it's not the transliteration, but it is a brokenness and a vacant heart that is ready to receive. That's the point. Because to be saved, the third point, to be saved means you've had a change of status. There's been a moving of a boundary stone and you have now stepped inside a new territory and you have new jurisdiction upon your life. It's geographic and it's generational. It will affect your generational lines if you raise your children up in the way. They will not depart from it. So again, this is a marker, a generational and geographical shift in your life, salvation. And now we see there's five ingredients to declaring and thereby receiving the gospel. What is the gospel? Five ingredients to declaring it, five ingredients to receiving the gospel. Number one, 
You can see this as we come into the 14th verse. How then shall we call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a proclaimer? And how shall they proclaim except they be sent? So, the first ingredient to declaring and thereby receiving the gospel is, number one, shod your apostolic feet with it and get out and start doing something. Shod your feet in the gospel, which is the preparation of peace, Ephesians 6. Number two, proclaim means you've got to be bold. You've got to be bold. Number three, why? So that they can hear. And here isn't acoustic, it is hearing with the blood-tipped ear so that obedience and action will follow. Number four, so that they will believe. And number five, so they may call on him. This is the ingredients of doing the work. And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that proclaim the gospel of peace and bring the gospel of good things. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Yahuwah who has believed our report. And of course, this is from Isaiah 53 verse 1. Yahuwah who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Yahuwah. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, truly. Their sound went out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, verse 18 is a quotation, of course, of Psalm 19. So Psalm 19 is defining what? The gospel. Psalm 19 is defining the gospel. So let's find out what the real gospel is. Not according to some New Testament theologian, but according to what? Hearing the word of Yahweh. Psalm 19. Six, six verifying facts of the true gospel. Number one, it is the perfect revelation of Yahweh spoken. It's the perfect revelation of Yahweh is spoken. Number two, it proclaims knowledge. Number three, it's heard. Number four, it goes out in a line. Number five, it originates in his perfect law. And number six, it converts the soul. That is the perfect gospel. That is the definition of the gospel. Look at Psalm 19. Again, look at the six verifying facts of the true gospel. Day to day, utter speech. And night to night, I proclaim knowledge. There are no speeches or words in which their voices are not heard. Their line... Their line is gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the sun he has set his 
tabernacle and he comes forth as a bridegroom out of his chamber. He will exalt as a giant to run his course. His going forth is from the extremity of heaven and a circuit to the outer end of the heaven and no one shall be hidden from his heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, converting the soul. There's your gospel. Six verifying facts of the true gospel in his word. And that's what keeps us on the gospel road, right? Listening to sound alone, acoustics, is the folly of the false gospel. They just listen. Listen to the sounds alone. The sounds coming from the radio, the sounds coming from the pulpit, but it is not verified by what? Hearing the word of Yahuwah by reading it and studying it yourself. That's the problem. True believers hear the true message, and that means they shamar. They hear and obey because true belief leads to obedience because obedience comes by hearing, which isn't acoustic. It's so much more than that. But it's a response to a call, a call to action, faith in action. And I know my life has been a life led in response to a call because I hear the still small voice and I respond to a call. And we were even talking about that last night, just with the books we read. I, would, I was asking Sarah, well, how did you come to read that book? Because the call of the still, small voice led to her to, to choose that book. And then I pick it. I'm like, where? I've got to get this book. I mean, out of all the books, how do you come across this book? Because, again, that's what we're to do. We're to have the discernment, discernment to hear and to obey. That's faith in action. And that is the path of the righteous. Now look at verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moshe says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are not a people at all. In the Hebrew, a low ami. Remember Hosea? The lower me, they are not my people. So I'm going to prevent, provoke you to jealousy by the people that Hosea said are not my people, which are the ten northern tribes, the northern house of Israel, Ephraim, that have been cast off, scattered in the nations, assimilated under the Gentiles, got caught up in all that rubbish, but have now understood that forensic righteousness comes by the risen Messiah and they're making an influx into the vacated synagogues because the Jews have left because of the um, edict of Claudius and now they're like, yes! And then the Jews are trickling back and Paul's like, look, look at them. They're seeking after righteousness. Yes, they're zealous, but it is not according to the knowledge of Messiah. And they're going to be upset when they come in and find out that your zeal is submitted to the righteousness of Messiah and therefore you are forensically righteous. And they will never get it if they keep holding to the false construct that their righteousness is because they're this little group. And that they're saying, we are from the tribe of Judah, we are the Jews and therefore we're righteous, we're the holy people. Don't buy into that. 
Because that is not the standard of Yahweh. That is the standard of men. It's a standard of the flesh. It will never get you into the spiritual realm of righteousness. So now, verse 19. First, Moshe says, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are not a people at all, a low a me. And by this foolish nation, I will anger you. He's, of course, um, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 21. In fact, verse 19 You have to ask yourself, why is the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking right here to the Romans, if he's done away with the Torah, which we know is not true, then why would he be quoting the Song of Moses? Why? If they've got nothing to do with that which went beforehand, why is he right here in his letter, in verse 19, quoting the Song of Moses? What's Paul trying to communicate by inserting the Song of Moses when he's defining the gospel? Hmm. He's defining the gospel. He's speaking to those that have come into the household of faith. And by defining the gospel, he's going to quote to you the Song of Moses. You mean, Paul, that when Moses told them to sing this song, it's got something to do with the gospel and the regathering of the whole house of Israel. But the ones that are regathered understand that their righteousness comes by Messiah But the ones that are seeking after their own righteousness are because they think their covenant status comes as being the Jewish people. And in trying to get us to understand this and what really the epitome of the gospel is, you want us to go back to the song of Moses. And that's where we'll get all the understanding. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. Okay, well, maybe we should do that. How about that? I mean, why didn't somebody help me think this way 20 years ago? I'd have been so much further ahead. It's just simple Bible study now to us. But back then, you never were taught how to do this. So let's go back and let's see what the heck is going on that he is going to try and link this to what the true gospel message is and the whole thing with the diversion of the peoples and the influx of Israel. I'm passionate about it. Paul is trying to communicate by inserting the song of Moses here when he's defining the gospel and the gathering in of the lower me, not my peoples, into one new man. And it's all wrapped around what happened right before the Song of Moses. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses declares that in the latter days, Israel will provoke Yahuwah. And Yahuwah then will in turn use the lower me, not my people, to provoke Israel. Oh, you're going to provoke Yahuwah? Well, he's going to actually provoke you. You see, you've provoked him because you're sticking with your little Jewish clique. Or like I said last week, clique. You're sticking with your little Jewish clique. And that has provoked Yahuwah. 
because you won't accept and kiss the son if you know his name. So now he's going to take the lower me, the people, the not my people, scattered out in the nations, and he's going to use them to provoke you. And now we continue back in our narrative in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and he's going to provoke Israel as the lower me, not my people, return as one new man into the new covenant, making Israel still jealous as they rebel under the weight of the book of the law. They are still entrenched. Look at the context of Deuteronomy 31. It comes right on the heels of them being entrenched and under the judgment and tutorship and restriction of the book of the law that they're still stuck in. And now he's going to tell them they're rebelling They're still under the burden of the book of the law's condemnation as it witnesses against them, not only in the breaking of the original book of the covenant, but it is still witnessing against them now as they are nationally rejecting Yahusha. That's the context. That's why he's driving you back to Deuteronomy 31 because preceding it, There is the what? Book of the law imposed upon a rebellious nation that are trying to find and establish their own righteousness. And now he is showing you what the true gospel is, is going to provoke those to jealousy that are still under the weight and condemnation of the book of the law. This is powerful if you have the ears to hear but you can't be just listening to acoustics. And you've got to understand the polemic if you're going to try and come against truth and righteousness. Don't go off zealously half-cocked. It doesn't make good for anybody. It really doesn't. So now we can continue on and we can see. And here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. What threads... Verse 18 and verse 19 of our text together through their quotations of Psalm 19 verse 1 and Deuteronomy 31 verse 28. What threads verse 18 and 19 together? Because remember... In those two verses, Paul has taken the time to quote us some scriptures from the Tanakh. And now we have to say, what is the common thread? What is he trying to communicate from those verses that he's inserting in there? He's taken a lot of time to do them and put it right there in the letter. Psalm 19 verse 1. Deuteronomy 31, verse 28. What's the common thread? Anyone see it? Anyone? The heavens and the earth is the common thread. And here's the kicker. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 28, this witnesses to Israel's rebellion and placement under the book of the law. 
And in Psalm 19, verse 1, it witnesses to the true gospel by Yahusha's blood-ratified covenant, which originates, back in point five, within the perfect covenant of Torah. Right there. He's threading the needle for us if we just take the time to go and see where it's at. But Isaiah was very bold, verse 20, and says, I was found by them that sought me not. I was made manifest to them that asked not after me. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I have stretched forth my hands to a disobedient and quarrelsome people. Isaiah 65 Yahushua was found by the lower me, the not my people. He manifests himself to the scattered sheep. Not the home-born Judean flock. No, he stretched out his hands till the ninth hour on the tree to a disobedient people stuck under the boot of Rome, stuck under the boot of the Herodians and buckling underneath the weight of the book of the law and they rejected him not. So therefore he went to another people's, the lower me, and they embraced him understanding that their righteous status, forensic righteousness, only came through the blood ratification of Yahushua that brings you into covenant. And he is now using that polemic of those who rejected, still under the burden of the crippling weight of the book of the law, referring you back to the song of Moses, that they are still in rebellion. And they're still buckling under the boot of Rome, buckling under the boot of the Herodians, buckling under the boot of the book of the law. Yet you have a liberation to righteousness because you're the lower me that understand that your righteous standing doesn't come by the works of flesh. This is chapter 10. And if you follow those scriptures, it's a powerful, liberating chapter to righteousness that inspires us, inspires us to push in further. It's the true gospel. It's to the scattered remnant out in the nations who have an ear to hear. Let them hear what the Spirit saith. Amen? Amen. Questions, comments, anybody? Yes. Yeah, we've got a microphone, I'm sure. On. This is one of my most favorite chapters out of the Word of God. This is what I established my whole ministry all the time I've been working for Abba. What saith it? Those three little words mean so much to me because we can come into we come into Hebraic movement into into Hebrew roots, and I was coming into truth because when I said those words, I met them from the bottom of my heart. If you mean these words from the bottom of your heart, you're going to want to know more. You're not going to just be happy with what some preacher is saying behind the pulpit. i got to know more. But I found out when I got into the Hebrew Roots Movement 
that a lot of things was doing what the Jews wanted us to do. We was adapting their traditions. And I don't believe, don't get me wrong, I don't believe in replacement theology. But I know what it says here. And if those people do not accept Yahushua as their Savior and they vow according to the word, every idle word that comes out of your mouth you will be held accountable for. These vows are very important. Why would I want to accept the traditions? Why would I want to accept the customs of a people who don't believe in the Messiah and the Son of Haba? Because according to, the, according to this word, they have no part of him. For no man shall go to the Father except by the Son. There will be one mediator between men and God and that man, Yahushua. Well, I and think the problem is him, people are chasing after, after the works of the flesh. And you often hear, yes. oh, the, this, this people group are my brothers. And you're like, well, hang on a minute. The Master said, who is your brother? Yes. Because all of us know, that all of, of us, father. all of us have earthly families. I have an earthly family, but I, when I am with my brothers and my sisters of the faith, yes. oh, it's totally different. We're in harmony. We are close. We understand that there is no. It's different. Yes. That is your brother. Yes. How can you say a people that? despise the one that purchased you is of your same family. And that's the one Unless you're <laughs> not in that family and your father is the devil. Do you think that might be and some that of is delusion exactly he's talking about? What that happens. grand delusion? And you have a what? A veneer. A veneer of righteousness. Yes. But you deny the power. Not walking in a converted life will lead you to what? Follow after the doctrines of demons. Anybody else? Questions? Comments at all? And we have um, Shavuot. We'll be meeting up. On what date is that? On the 28th at Riverbend Park. At 11 o'clock. All right, for a kosher barbecue or something. And a mikvah. So, Abba, we thank you, Abba, for this time. We thank you for Shabbat, Abba. I just praise you, Yahweh, for your word from Bereshit, Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, Abba. And I thank you, Abba, how you have taught us to, Abba, look at the garment of your word and look at the stitching, look at the threads, and follow your lead. Oh, Abba, it truly is a tapestry. And I thank you, Abba, that you have enabled us to see that you are the master craftsman, that you have brought your son, Yahushua, the master craftsman, into our lives, Abba, that we may see that our forensic righteousness only comes through his great work of redemption and resurrection. We thank you for this time. We ask that you would guard and keep your flock as we come in from the nations, we come in from the cold, we come in from the dark. Many of us are hungry, many of us are tired, but we know, Yahweh, that you will sustain us and that the warmth from your heart is where we will rest our head, just as John the Beloved would always rest his head on your El Shaddai. Elohim's breast is sufficient to give us warmth, and we thank you for the warmth that truly comes only by your son, Yahushua. 
And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.